History is full of terrifying, haunted locations that have spawned numerous grisly tales and frightening legends. The Amityville Horror House, Borley Rectory, Chillingham Castle, Tatlock Towers. All of these places have borne witness to such awful tragedies and unfortunate events that the word haunted feels like an understatement. In fact, it might be more appropriate to describe these places as cursed. But did you know there is one place in Weatherfield with a history so dark, so bloody, so horrific, that it puts all these other legends to shame? The address seems comforting and domestic, the street it resides in humble and ordinary, yet this house has stood silently for the past thirty years, shrouding from the innocent the unimaginable darkness within its four walls. That house, dear listener, is number six, Coronation Street, currently the abode of one Yasmin Metcalf. She is one of many who have felt the miserable effects of the curse, and will surely not be the last. Some might say that thirty years is barely long enough to cultivate such an impressive collection of gruesome tales, yet the sorry history of this site dates back much further than the foundations of the building. The dark northern skies have long looked down upon generations of working class men and women, whose bodies have been crushed under the heel of modern industry. And 100 years ago, on the site of Number 6 Coronation Street, stood the grim and forbidding walls of Hardcastle's mill. None can say how many truly lost their lives as the machines churned endlessly onwards, pulverising dreams and flesh alike. But we do know of at least one unfortunate victim named John Matthews. The circumstances of this tragic worker's demise remain a mystery, but one could imagine poor John was one of the many children employed to retrieve valuable scraps of cotton from the workhouse floor, dodging perilously betwixt the heavy moving parts of the mill. Accidents were common, life was cheap, children were unprotected. Should he have become entangled in the machinery, one can only imagine the pain and suffering that he would have experienced during his final gasps. An inauspicious start, to this accursed plot. Depression stalked the land in more ways than one in the 1930s, and the mill was closed, making way for Elliston's raincoat factory. Although many a young woman cheerfully went about her business earning pennies to feed her family, not all who were employed here were of a sunny disposition. A young, brooding, intelligent woman named Christine Hardman, recently bereaved of her mother not two years since, found herself quite overcome by melancholy. Was it due to the suppressive aura of suffering that already cloaked this sight, or was it just the dull, repetitive monotony of her humdrum life? No matter the reason, the young woman had found her way to the roof of the building, resolved to cast herself onto the hard and unforgiving cobbles below. The curse would not yet claim another victim, however, thanks to the brave actions of a young Kenneth Barlow, who hoisted himself among the chimneys to confront Christine and dissuade her from her heartbreaking intentions. However, the malignant energies which resided here craved another in her stead, and Christine could only be released from the curse's grip when, 
not ten years later, a soul was harvested and Kenneth paid the price for cheating death of its prize. By the early 1970s, the factory had been torn asunder and replaced with a collection of family homes, maisonettes for those just beginning their lives and for others nearing the end of theirs. One such family embarking on a bright domestic journey were Kenneth and Valerie Barlow. A young mother with great ambitions, Valerie was preparing to say goodbye to the street for a new life abroad. However, the manner in which she bade farewell was not that which she had planned. The Barlows nearly escaped the curse that had been placed on this land, but alas, Valerie was the sacrifice Kenneth had unknowingly made all those years before, and she met her demise in a house fire caused by a demonically possessed electrical appliance. Weatherfield could not stand the sight of the sad, tattered ruins where tragedy had now struck again, and... Once more, the location was given over to industry as the Mark Britton warehouse was constructed. But yet again, strange forces compelled a spirit of malice in the souls of those nearby, and a fire started by mischievous intruders claimed the life of two workers, one of whom was the wife of the soon-to-be rover's potman, Fred G. If you were to suggest a maudlin explanation, it might be that the curse's fingers were beginning to creep further across the cobbles to influence the lives of more of those who lived and worked in Coronation Street. The wheels of capitalism continue to turn, and before long, a tyrannical entrepreneur, quite in the spirit of those who had come before him, arrived to take his place in the wretched history of Weatherfield. Michael Baldwin worked his employees to the bone, quite literally in one case, when Ernest Bishop was brutally murdered at his desk. Emily, his wife, a good Christian woman, waited patiently at home for her husband who would never return. His dreams of an artistic career in photography cut short by the insatiable curse that had barely begun to receive its share of victims. Of course, there is more to a curse than claiming a handful of souls. Misfortune and misery are curse enough and of that there was soon plenty to be found. Baldwin's business was eventually replaced with a collection of homes, and the curse would centre itself on the now infamous address of number six. Is it a coincidence that this number is part of the one born of the great beast himself, manifested as 666? You may perhaps wonder this yourself as you hear some of the sad stories that would play out behind its front door. You see, a house is made to be a home, but this house would not be anyone's home for very long. As the curse grew stronger, its appetite for victims grew stronger still, and number six soon became notorious as its families came and went, each one the worse off for their residence there. A rocky marriage might seem an ordinary sort of problem, the sort that you would hardly need to blame a curse for. But Steph and Des Barnes, the first residents of the new number six, had the sort of marriage that one could barely call anything but cursed. Alienated from his wife by a strange obsession with his boat, Des soon spiralled into what some might call a certain sort of madness. In a desperate bid to win Steph back, Des lured her to his boat one day, only to set it alight in dramatic fashion. It seemed for a moment that the curse had claimed another corpse for its clutch, 
but as the smoke cleared, it seemed the only victim was to be their marriage. But these marital disputes soon did give way to death. Yes, another victim in the form of Lisa Duckworth. Lisa may well have thought she escaped a curse of her own, leaving her husband, villainous Terry Duckworth, behind her, but she was sorely mistaken. Less than a year passed before she passed herself beyond this mortal veil to who knows where. Something to ponder for those left behind, which included dear Lisa's young son, Tommy, now left adrift in this cruel world. It happened on a cold February night, a moment of distraction upon leaving the local tavern, and Lisa's grip upon her purse faltered. As she bent down to retrieve it, she was momentarily shrouded in darkness, and a driver of a car struck the young woman dead. Des would not escape the curse either. A string of failed romances followed, including Tanya Pooley, a barmaid whose comely appearance hid the darkest of hearts. In fact, there are those who claim Tanya was the devil incarnate, but to say she was the manifestation of a curse made flesh is perhaps too far to leap. Des's final attempt at happiness ended in tragedy, after his new lover Natalie Horrocks embroiled him in a terrible altercation caused by her son, Tony. You see, your home should be your castle, as every Englishman knows, and so when your most sacred of spaces is invaded by intruders, it is a terrible shock indeed. But these rogues were not content with merely causing mischief. They set about beating Tony and were only stopped when Des intervened. The curse struck, and by that I mean his head was struck upon the table, that is, and although he was rushed to hospital, modern medicine has not yet found a way to lift such an infliction, and Des, too, joined the myriad of victims now claimed. Tony, too, not cleared of his association with this devilish location, would have his life taken in a vicious murder, his mortal remains secreted under Victoria Street, to be discovered many months later. Natalie, now a widow just four months following her wedding to Des, was left alone in that dreadful house, the walls seeping with malice and the floors creaking like the spirits of the damned. The house was hungry again, but Natalie was too canny to reside there long herself. Instead, the place would pass to another family, the Ramsdens. A wise old crone once said, good looks are a curse, and it's the truth that Matthew Ramsden could have been claimed to be thus so afflicted. But sometimes those with beatific countenance must pay a debt to life's balance in other ways, and so we find Matthew unburdened with what may be called a personality. A curse may rob you of your life, true, but sometimes it does so before you even die, and anyone who was unfortunate enough to surveil the activities of the Ramsdens might say death would have been more favourable. Yes, Matt and his wife Charlie, herself a victim of the demon drink, passed quickly through the pages of Weatherfield's history books, and soon the curse began to flick those pages ever faster, one after the other, striking through the stories of those residents at number six so quickly that they may as well never have existed at all. It is said that death only comes for a man once the last one to remember him passes from this world. But what of those who are forgotten who still live? A fate worse than death or just the curse of number six.
The Harris family were next to suffer on the altar of the fickle eye of history, gone in a flash. But what misery they had to contend with before they left. Let us survey the scene. A family on the run, a dark secret, so much hidden in plain sight. Angela Harris, the matriarch of the family, had been the unwilling witness to a murder which led the family to go underground to protect their identities. Katie Harris, the younger daughter, was seduced by a far older man, Martin Platt, much to the disapproval of her parents. Tommy Harris, her father, cruelly spun a web of lies which led to Katie aborting her child, only to discover she was deceived. For though deceit had become the foundation the family was built upon, so would it lead to their destruction. The unseen hand of fate working once more to wring destruction from the fragile souls of man tightened into a fist, and violence was soon the inevitable result. Incensed by the death of her unborn child, Katie sent her father too to meet his maker and battered him to death with a wrench before joining them both in a truly bittersweet finale. What remains now of the Harris family? Scattered to the wind, as inconsequential as dandelion seeds, borne away and out of sight. Flick the pages again and you will find a man named Charlie Stubbs living at number six. A reckless man, a cruel man, and a violent one. A womanizer and an abuser, he tore the happiness from his lover, one Shelley Unwin, before turning his eye to other women. First Tracy Barlow, then an affair with Maria Sutherland, then a brush with a wild child of Weatherfield himself, David Platt, who tried to defend Tracy's honor against this cad. And what was his reward for his vigilance and valor? A brush with death in a bathtub. A gasp of air, a plunge into water, a desperate struggle to breathe. Was the curse giving David a reminder of his own escape from death in the watery depths of Weatherfield Canal some years previously? Perhaps. Luckily the boy lived, but Charlie was not done manifesting misery on the street, working like a karmic force of evil himself, but he hadn't reckoned on the fact that he was not the most evil thing that stalked the cobbles. No. For a brief time, that title belonged to Tracy. Incensed at his recklessness with her affections, Tracy vowed to take revenge, and she did so coldly and methodically. As though working in tandem with the wicked spirits lodged in that house, she embarked upon a relentless campaign to smear Charlie as an abuser, a plan that culminated in a pitiless execution as she seduced the man before bludgeoning him to death with a statue. What was this statue of, you might ask? It was the effigy of a mother and child, a most blameless and innocent of depiction of familial love, and one which was perverted in a pool of blood at the hands of this vicious and cruel woman. Or did a greater power work through her? One must ponder the influence of fate upon her deeds. In fact, was it with the luck of the devil himself that Tracy soon found herself freed from prison despite being sentenced to life? Were those grasping, needy fingers reaching ever further from number six in order to wring havoc from as many lives as possible? We must move on. The winds of time blow harder and our pages are turning once more. And it's beginning to feel as though some of these pages have been stuck 
stuck together and their contents lost to memory. The Mortons, that does ring a bell. A group of unremarkable people whose essence seems to have been drained away, dripping into the cracks between the floorboards to feed something hideous underneath, something that was waiting and biding its time to feed. Jerry Morton struck with a heart attack, but this could not be blamed on a curse, unless you consider owning a kebab shop to be a curse. No, be patient. The curse is about to work its dark magic once more, for Jerry's estranged wife, Teresa, bound with some malignant energy, feeling lost and in need of being needed, began to enjoy nursing her ex-husband. So when recovery looked likely, it seemed like such a simple thing for her to administer a dose or two of a pill that was more poison than cure. Teresa nearly killed the man in her pursuit of purpose, but Jerry escaped, barely. The Mortons left Weatherfield and the pages turn on, leaving them barely a footnote in the story of number six. Whatever gruesome thing lurked in the bowels of the house grew fat on misery, and as it grew fat and fatter again, it grew lazy. A snap here, a bite there, but the families following seemed to escape the worst of the horrors that had been inflicted before. The Windass family moved in, and the young master of the house, Gary, found himself enamoured of the idea of going to war, for queen and country, so he thought. A brave chap who shipped out with other similarly brave souls, all to be thrown in the maelstrom of violence and death. Gary found horror, but he also found companionship in a friend they called Quinny. Alas, Quinny was not to live long as part of this story, but his violent death left a shadow on Gary's heart that would remain long after. Ghosts may haunt rooms of number six, but there are none more relentless or terrifying than the ones that reside inside your mind, and Gary's terror knocked on the inside of his skull, unleashing itself in times of great stress and pulling him all the way back to that fateful day when he lost his friend. Some could say Gary's darkness has never lifted, and his curse is to never find peace again, no matter which house he resides in. The deeds now pass to Owen Armstrong, a stoic and trusty guardian, to be sure, but there was still trouble brewing for him and his new lover, Anna Windass. Malevolent forces sometimes approach you in disguise, and just like a vampire, it would be foolish to invite them in. But this is exactly what Owen did when he invited the murderous Pat Phelan into his life. Seduced by the promise of easy money, Owen made a deal with the devil but soon discovered the price was too high to pay. The true nature of Pat's depravity would only become apparent on an oppressive summer's night, a night which saw a young woman, Tina McIntyre, topple from her flat balcony overlooking Owen's yard, only to be bludgeoned to death by some fiend on the cobbles below. While this murderous deed was taking place in the shadows of Victoria Street, Anna was uttering a dark revelation about Pat's sordid schemes one that would shake Owen to his core. Blackmail, betrayal and murder were soon to follow and Pat was to become one of Weatherfield's most savage killers. Of course, one can hardly blame the curse of number six for his crimes. Sometimes man can manifest such evil that the devil himself can only look on in admiration. 
And now we come to the current occupant of number 6 Coronation Street, a certain woman named Yasmin, who found herself in the eye of the storm along with her family. Her tenure has seen her last the longest of all the living occupants of this house, but her life has been blighted by pain and suffering during the eight years that she has resided there. Feeding greedily on her agony and sorrow, the house soon dispatched of her beloved only son, Cal, whose flesh was consumed by a hellish inferno on the night he pledged his eternal soul to the love of his life. Bereft, Yasmin sought comfort in the arms of her husband, but unbeknownst to her, his heart belonged to another. Death. Heartbreak. What form would the vile energies trapped inside the house take next? The following years saw the demise of two more souls linked to number six, as Yasmin's grandchildren began to suffer alongside her. Already having been orphaned by the curse, they would lose more loved ones as the months turned into years. Zidane's wife Rana crushed beneath rubble in a horrendous accident, and Alia's sweetheart Luke, a victim of that dark, unholy terror, Pat Phelan. But worse was still to come for Yasmin, as she would soon come face to face with a man who would ruin her life. Jeff Metcalf. How far can one take a simple trick? When does a trick become a lie? When does a trickster become a liar? When does magic become mayhem? Since the dawn of time, man has always been fascinated by the allure of the illusion, but the best magicians never reveal their secrets. But secrets soon fester, and that which is hidden can begin to rot. And Jeff Metcalf was rotten to the core. A proud man, proud of his ability to deceive, Jeff's love of magic was driven by a dark purpose. Far from an innocent love of entertaining his audience, Jeff delighted in control and power of holding people in his thrall. Soon his obsession with control would leave Yasmin a husk of her former self, almost as though the house was working through him to leech her life force day by miserable day. As though caught in a web and transfixed by a paralytic poison, Yasmin was hypnotised and trapped, and the house enjoyed its fill. But it was not content with toying with its prey. It demanded fresh blood, and its sinister influence led one night to both greater heights of violence as a confrontation occurred. Pushed to the brink by Jeff's insatiable cruelty, Yasmin attempted to defend herself and instead nearly sliced his throat in two. An anguished cry, a shower of broken glass and a desperate lunge saw him left for dead in a pool of blood, but he escaped the house's grasp only to be lured back by its siren song, settling like the spider once more, awaiting its prey in its lair, while Yasmin wound her painful way through the courts of justice for her act of violence. The best hunters are the ones who have the patience to wait for their prey to catch up with them, and this was a particular skill of the man who now welcomed Jasmine after her exoneration. Biding his time until one bleak winter's night, Jeff struck. Desperate and with nothing left to lose, he set light to the house after Yasmin bravely returned to confront him. Perhaps this was the reason the house then turned on him, and in an act of self-preservation, it fought back. Consuming with fire all of his beloved trinkets and tricks, the house raged against him, forcing the couple to seek refuge on the roof. 
The pair were suspended in the night's air, just as Christine had been all those years before, now trapped by the weight of evil intentions that had soaked into the very bricks of the house, the culmination of decades of dark deeds and miserable lives cut short. The police report will say that Jeff slipped on the tiles and fell to his death. But after you've heard tonight, could you say the same to be true? Or is it more likely that the house claimed its last victim in a final act of rage, a blood sacrifice to bring an end to the cycle of horror and death? In putting its most evil and sinister resident to rest, did the house find peace at last? There are some who say the curse of number six has finally been lifted. Undoubtedly, there's a certain lightness in the air, a spring in Yasmin's step. Indeed, she may have found love again after all these years with a gentleman named Stuart, who has a twinkle in his eye and a song in his heart. But, even now, something is stirring deep underground. A dormant spirit, seeking revenge. A woman, whose life was cut short. A ghost, who has not been yet laid to rest. For who really knows what happened those 27 years ago when Stuart's mistress, Charlie, was taken from this life? Have all of the demons of number six really been vanquished? Or does the curse roll on, ready to take on more victims to feed its insatiable hunger for blood? Only time will tell. <laughs>